0: Welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode,
1: we are interviewing Russell Dodgson, the VFX supervisor on the His Dark Materials TV show.
0: There are spoilers in this episode for the first trilogy of his dark materials. So if you haven't read all of them, pop back when you're all caught up and we'll be here.
1: Hello! Hello! Hello. Another interview. <laughs> so exciting. First off, before you get any further, please know this is the second interview we've done with Russell. So if you want all of the hot goss on the VFX for season one, and our general introductory interview with Russell. Please go back and listen to the first interview we did with
0: him because this one, we're catching up all about season two. Exactly, and yeah, do go and listen because it's a joy to talk to Russell. And he was one of the he was the first person actually that ever contacted us from the show to say that he liked the podcast. Um, and that was way back. We I think we'd only been podcasting for like a month at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been great to get to know russell i suppose over this period official friend of the pod official <laughs> friend of the pod yes definitely and also you'll when you get into the this interview you'll hear that he calls back to our first interview about red panda so you might want to check that out because that was mm-hmm. exciting for us because you know our goldfish <laughs> memories we were like oh my god we had the information all along <laughs> <laughs> how did we not put two and two together <laughs> but yes it was bloody lovely to speak to russell and he has so many great insights because he's a vfx supervisor but i believe he's also one of the executive producers so he's across most of the things that we see in season one and season two so it was great to ask him about specifically the vfx but also just the show in general and like scenes that we enjoyed so yeah it was uh, it was lovely to speak to him
1: yeah lots of great insights and stories from russell coming up
0: for your ears <laughs> Yay. and i don't think we have anything else to say in the intro as usual we just want to get you to the interview as quickly as possible unless you have anything burning that you want to say rich
1: Mm-mm. let's do this <laughs> let's do it <laughs> hi
0: russell thank you so much for joining us again
2: hello how you doing
0: welcome back yes we're okay yeah i mean yeah <laughs> pandemic okay like we just said before we hit record but you know still here still still doing stuff
2: so we can hope for so we exactly. can hope for
0: yeah how are you how are you doing
2: i'm good i'm good i um had you know a pretty busy fairly intense 2020 i don't know what year it is, is it's 2021 now i had a pretty busy 2020 um, and, a, and it was pretty abstract by the end of it. I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And then um, I had a bit of downtime around Christmas. Um, and then, you know, as always with TV shows, there's always another season. And then it sort of, it's all started picking up again and sort of I'm in prep and we're busy working away for your future entertainment.
0: Ooh, well, thank you.
1: <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> I guess that kind of prompts my first big question, which is like season two really went through went through it, <laughs> losing the last episode because of COVID. And then I imagine a vast majority of the post-production happening during an international crisis with a lot of people working under some really difficult conditions. So first off, thank you so much. Season two was an absolute joy to yes. watch and it's so clear everyone worked so hard on it. You're
2: welcome, I guess.
1: How was that how was that working on the season in these like really unusual circumstances
2: um I think I think the thing that's interesting I mean it was I found it to be an interesting experience I'm not like gonna sit here and tell you it was like woe is me like I had a job <laughs> that's a good start <laughs> um, you know and I you know I still got to have I, I had I had a job that I enjoyed right which is like you know for a start a blessing that year but also I think, you know, nobody gets into making TV shows and doing film and doing this sort of stuff if they're not sort of just like, if they don't basically have a massive love of solving really crazy problems. I mean, that's just how it is. So um, the run-up to the day when we stopped shooting the Azriel episode was weird. That was definitely weird. That felt like we were sort of involved in this kind of strange sort of post-apocalyptic movie. Um, and then, and then, you know, there was definitely a regrouping, but, you know, we, yeah, you know, I mean the frame store that, you know, who do all the visual effects, they, they got like a thousand people working from home within like four weeks. Wow. And they, and, and I don't know, I, I only think they dropped their productivity to like 80% for like a week. And then it was back up to 95, you know, it never re- it's really hard to hit a hundred percent of what you were doing. And you know, it sort of starts to become an it's like a new hundred percent because things are slightly different. But um, you know, everybody sort of hustled and then we really hustled to like rebreak or like go over the show, not rebreak it, but go over the show to see where things were missing from that potential episode and make sure we were bolstering things in different places. And there were lots of weird little reshoots and you know. Which are very, quite funny. I'm in the show a couple of times.
1: Oh um, yeah. <laughs> oh, we didn't spot you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't. Um, and uh, and yeah, we just sort of. There was a lot of like guerrilla fixing that was really fun, actually, but um, stressful, I guess. And and I tell you, the, the biggest difference actually was because we went into doing post working from home completely, and I work with offices that are across multiple time zones. Like that was pretty brutal because you know. Lunch hour disappears, but suddenly you're working and like you're starting work at nine in the morning, but you're doing your last review at midnight. And it's just like every day over and over again, it gets really relentless. So yeah, that was pretty hard. But you know, we got there and it's done.
0: Mm-hmm. Where were you in the show? I want to know. <laughs>
2: uh, there, was just like, um, there was just like some weird reshoots that happened. So there we had to do a few little pickups for the knife fight. I think there's three shots in a row where I play a different person in each shot. Like I'm in the background of one shot in Terrence Stamps clothing sitting on the floor and then like like, for a minute I'm a bit of like someone holding a knife and then it's my legs and then it's like so we're just like just trying to make it sort of like piece things together because you know there's always reshoots but our reshoot time kind of just sort of went so we had to do this kind of this kind of weird little guerrilla shoot with a really good mate of mine who's a DP came in and we just shot stuff on leftover sets just the two of us Wonderful. yeah it's fun not a lot to be honest
0: Well, we'd never have noticed, which is a good thing, I suppose.
2: (laughs) That is a good sign. You don't don't want this kind of sort of hairy lump of a human on your TV, really. So (laughs) just like the occasional glimpses may be all right.
0: What were some of the differences between the VFX for season one and season two? Because obviously the fans, huge fans of season one, did you consciously choose to do anything different because of the reaction that you'd had? Or did you do the same things across the board?
2: I think, you know, like I said, I, th- I think I said sort of last time, that my approach to this stuff is always like you do what you thinks best and, you know, everybody else gets their opinion, but, you know, and if they want to do it differently, they can go off and make their own version of the show and that's fine and I'll watch it and I'll think what I think, you know, it's all cool. Um, but I think, you know, there were some th- there were some things that I liked about the season, like what the season afforded us. So there's things like because we had to do less background demons and worry about that as a thing – it meant that we were always being more sort of narratively effective with our money and our animation, which I like because, you know, I don't have any interest in, like, populating the background of a shot with really expensive extras. I really like, you know, doing, like, character work. So it meant we could lean into that a bit more, which was good. Um, we had new issues. The, the, the strange thing is when you, when we started season one, the big panic was like, how are we going to do the demons, you know? So everybody everybody was just like looking at me going, is it going to be okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, don't worry. The people that are doing your animals are just really good at doing animals. It's going to be fine. But that was the underlying worry. And then you hit season two and everybody just thinks demons, demons are now easy because we did a good job of it on season one. And there's a new problem. And the new problem this year was like, you know, spectres and windows and a big Mediterranean town in the middle of nowhere and, you know, all of that stuff. So, it, I mean, it, 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 the, I, what, the thing that's good about Pullman's books is that when you try and make them into TV, every season's different and it's always new problems and new challenges, which I like. It's good. sort of reinvents itself every 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 book.
0: Speaking of, firstly, Spectres, we would love to know just how that process for creating them came about because we thought they were amazing. We had so many conversations about how they looked and how they moved and it'd be great to like hear about your interpretation of that and how that progressed as you created them
1: and the debates that were had in their creation
2: (laughs) (laughs) um i mean the spectres are really they're difficult for a number of reasons the first thing is they're kind of you know and again this isn't criticism but pullman doesn't care too much about his logic when he writes stuff so they're kind of they're not just one thing when he writes them sometimes their kind of behavior or their movement or the description sort of slightly contradicts itself at times and things like that, which is fine. And you know, our job is to get to the sort of the essence and the root of what they are when you do effects, I mean, I'm going to call it an effects monster, right? When you do effects monsters, like you're basically always up against the same problem, which is there's been lots of effects monsters that exist. So it's like, for me, the first part is like just cutting away things that I don't want to copy. So it's like people are always going to reference Dementors. How do we avoid Dementors? Can we avoid Dementors? People are always, you know, like we don't want to be too much like the obscurities in Harry Potter. We don't want to be too much like, you know, the, the crazy weird creatures that actually we did for um, Edge of Tomorrow. Um, yeah, you know, like we don't want it to be too much like them. And, you know, so you have these kind of reference points in your head and you're trying to avoid sort of being too derivative. But at the same time, the description in the book has a, a kind of lead you to a certain place. Um, so you know, at first what we did is we tried um having them to be white and not gray black. Um, and we tried to and, and, and the sort of the thing, I guess sorry, if I go back, the thing that there's things that we kind of skipped. So uh in terms of how they move about, you know, I think the important thing is like trying to give them a personality and a desire and like a goal as a as even if they're like a monster, you try and give them like a thing, right? So we were like, they don't hunt people, they're like an organism. That just if it's near someone, it will just go for them, and then it's impartial. It's not like I don't like you, and it's not like it's not like it follows and it will chase you forever, right? It's it's like it will go after you if it's near you, like an organism, and it's impartial and it doesn't care, right? Ironically, we were making a show at the time about an Italian town that gets ravaged by uh, a spectre that 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 kills um adults but not children um and we were making and we were we were making that and about to shoot season uh, the, the the missing episode when it was all kicking off in italy and we were like this is turning out very strange um so you know and and you know and, and that's interesting and i think the impartial nature of them is interesting because then that starts to give you an idea of how you want them to move around the space um and then we and it means that then you can give them a bit more intention when Mrs. Coulter starts to command them a bit. So you can maybe see a slight like change in their character, like they're a bit more directional with what they do. So we went through sort of that process. We started making them white and very stringy and quite elastic, but it felt a bit too much like we just, it was too venomy. So we were like, let's go away from that. Jane, um, our illustrious leader, had a really great point. At, at, one, at one stage, she was just like, I don't want to know the, what, what the front is and what the back is. It doesn't matter. It hasn't got a head. It's just a thing. It doesn't have like a face and it doesn't, you know, so, and, and, and that, and once we took the directionality out of them, that actually helped make them feel a bit different and a bit weird as well. Um, We were quite abstract with the size in as much as, you know, two of them could become one and one of them could split and become two if we wanted and things like that. We didn't lean into it that much, but um, it was kind of part of the design. We explored having bits of body parts in them like the odd hand and stuff, but it felt too physical, like a monster that really digests. And it's not, it's more kind of sort of like a metaphysical type thing because of what it does to you. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's a real journey. And actually what we did is we, we just kept iterating on design ideas. And, and, and the thing from a technical perspective, what makes those creatures really hard is that they're made sort of programmatically like so, like some animals, you like some creatures you make, and it's like a hard thing. Like I know what you you sculpt right, right? So it's like you make mm. you make you make a sculpture, and it's the same thing. It's like a physical thing, and you move it around, and the rig and the bones move it. Whereas with these things, what literally, when we animate them, we just animate a completely nondescript sausage around the screen, right? And you just work out how fast you want it to to move, and then you push it through a series of simulations, and you get a result, right? And sometimes you go, that's awesome. Sometimes you get like this happy accident and you're like, oh, maybe that can inform my design. And then sometimes you go like, oh, God, that's really awful. And and sometimes you put the same setting in twice and because you've animated it differently, one sucks and one's great. So it's a really it's a really stressful process because you're constantly just throwing jelly at a wall and seeing if it sticks. <laughs> um, but in the end, it sort of stuck in the final hour because, you know, like, you know, we had shots that were like, we were doing in the last week and we were like going no that's not it that's not it that's not it that's kind of it but yeah anyway there you go
1: <laughs> amazing i yeah i really love the fluidity of them and kind of i wondered did you pull references of the classic like ink ink drops through water or ink drops through resin because it kind of has that fluidity
2: i actually was referencing for me i was referencing stuff underwater like amoebas and weird sort of like you can there's some like really weird kind of types of like seaweed and coral that kind of move sort of interestingly but but the thing is is that like the other thing about this is that like you get a lot of misdirection so at one point i i pushed us too far into the sea creature realm and we had these tendrils that were working really well for us in terms of giving them a sense of movement but then, when we reviewed it, someone was like, "They've got a bit monstery. and I was like, "Have they?" And they were like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Ah, shit!" And then, like, <laughs> it was like back to the drawing board, take the things off. And and the, and I tell you, the thing that was interesting is like, it's quite hard to make an effects monster that needs to stay kind of still because it's like, what does it do? Especially if you don't want them to be like really quick. Like the obscurus in Harry Potter is kind of I don't want to say easy because it's incredibly hard to make, but it's kind of an easier puzzle because it's just a bag of like madness that's just swirling around whereas for us we wanted them to become creepy and kind of static but you always need them to be moving if you want them to be alive but it's like why are they moving what's motivating that movement where's the stuff going why is it you know i mean it's like you don't want it to look like you're just staring at a washing machine so it's just a series of like endless headaches basically that eventually goes away because you have to put it on television
0: How did it work on set? Because obviously Ruth worked a lot with them. I know you had like puppets and stuff for the demons. How did it work with Ruth and like her reference points on on where they were around her?
2: It was mostly broad imagination, but we had for some specific shots, we literally just had like a stick with a little dot on the end that we poked her with and just went, (laughs) it's there. Yeah, there's a bit when she like reaches out to touch one and that was like a stick that was lovingly presented to her (laughs) (laughs) on camera. Yeah, we we were pretty... um, loose with that when we did the um people being attacked by them we did a mixture of things we had like uh i did a whole test day of stuff in fact that's a story um but we did a whole we, we did we did a test day of stuff and it was people we basically had people with bungee like elastic bungee cords attached to them and you'd put, we'd pull them around so that it felt like something else was influencing their movement rather than them doing it themselves so we like puppeteer people and it's 50 percent performance but that it's actually it's like 100 performance but 50 percent of it is influenced by them reacting to what you're doing you know so um we did this thing where like we did it we basically after we shot the main block i did a test day because we were going to have more specter attacks in the mcavoy episode so i did a test shoot um with some movement artists and the bungee cords and our puppeteers pulling them around. And luckily, it's really lucky that I decided that I wanted to make that test shoot look nice. Um, and we lit it all and we did it all on the sets because actually we ended up using the test stuff in the show because we could, we didn't ever get to shoot it and we still wanted to show people being attacked. So, But the problem was is when we did the test, the people who were the performers were wearing like, adidas tracksuits and stuff so we had to like cover their trousers up cleverly with the spectres and like hide them and paint like paint bits out and change shirts and all kinds of weird stuff just to get through it but you know if we didn't have that kind of series of events we wouldn't have had any shots of spectres really attacking people so we got lucky so lucky yeah really lucky so
0: (laughs) amazing i
1: love to have kind of dig more into the actual the ways that the spectre attacks because it's very Different on screen to on the page. On the page, it feels like an impending sense of dread and like a very slow process, but I can understand why that might not be as visually interesting. But were there lots of conversations around the violent speed at which the specters seem to just pounce?
2: That was definitely an evolution. And, you know, it sort of helps editorially to have those sort of punctuations, I think. But in the initial time, the early conversations, yeah, I was really keen and we were discussing like the idea that, you know, they're, they're quite a nice comparison to mental health again and, and the connection to that in Will's world with him and his mum and this idea that, like, it's more like you're having – like, one of the things that I said is I said, you know, if we ever saw a full Spectre attack from beginning to end, which we never do in the show, to point out, so they might get you quick and we don't – it's quite hard to play like, oh, I'm feeling a bit unwell – for like time it doesn't really like it's not the best visual sort of thing um but we never saw a full spectra attack and like i always described that if i thought you saw a full spectra attack it would be like when you see it would be like a scene out of like one through over the cuckoo's nest where like there's a patient having a psychotic episode and eventually they get sedated so i think if you so if we ever had the opportunity to do a full spectra attack by the end of it i think there would be like a, a sense of calm in the person as if like they've and I think the person in that attack would go through a range of emotions. Like when we were doing our test shoot, you know, I had the um, we had this the, the performers like would laugh because at some point they're like you know, just panicking in their brain, and then suddenly things something's funny to them because I mean, yeah, you know, like I remember my I remember like my um, my nan, bless her, she had dementia and like sort of she'd be in like a really bad way, and then she'd just find something funny, you know, and it's just like the way emo- emotions surface and stuff. So, you know, we did do a lot of sort of like experiments and deep diving on that stuff. It's just that we never ended up with the opportunity in the show to do the whole thing, which is a shame, but it also just is what it is, you know.
0: Mm. We were talking about laughing during things like that recently, Rich, weren't we, in one of our book episodes?
1: It's in the book when Will's just had his fingers chopped off and he sees them on, he looks down at them on the floor and they look like a little quotation mark and he just laughs and Lyra's like, oh my God. (laughs) I like I feel that. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think those emotional responses are really interesting aren't they? It's like just however you 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 know it's you know there's no defined way that you're supposed to react to seeing your hand on the floor. Um so you know I like I like that stuff and yeah like I said we ex, we explored it and the, I mean the speed of attack it's just really hard to make like a creature that like just wanders around aimlessly. And then, you know, we, we just thought, we just sort of thought of it like magnetism. Like one of our references at one point was iron filings, that idea that like you can go past iron filings, but as soon as they become aware of you, they start to make their way and the closer you get to them, the faster they get to you. So that's kind of how we played it basically, you know, like there's, you know, we, you, you have, um, when the rain of the witch is walking down in the thing and then it suddenly comes out at her. We tried to make it feel as much that it was jumping on her, that it was also attracted to her, and the way that it wraps around your body and sort of like just sort of consumes stuff. Um, we tried to make it as a, like it's a bit like as much of an attraction as an as, as an attack, you know. But yeah, it's tricky. I mean, at one point we were thinking that the whole town could have them in their like cobwebs. And they just hang around and then as you walk past, they just kind of float off the wall and get you. It's just a it's just like the tempo of that is a tricky thing. It's sort of that's the sort of thing that would work in a film that was just about that. And you could set the tone and the pace of the whole thing just about that. But in the context of our show and the pace of getting through the story and how long you can just hang out in certain moments, it's kind of tricky, I think. And actually the 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 kids can see them, but adults can't think. It's like it's a nightmare.
1: Oh, there's a definite like level of like undescribable transparency that exists in the way that Philip describes and throughout the books. I love that that was a ch- such a challenge for you to have to tackle. <laughs> well, it's, just,
0: it's
2: just, like, but it's also like trying to make it pay off. It's like you know, ah, you know, all those conversations is like oh, if you see them when you're an adult, but we don't want them to be adults too early. But actually, there's you know, as kids, they're getting older anyway, so it seems weird that like you know, it's just like <laughs> this sort of juggling thing. And in the end, you just sort of say you can't see them at some point you see a bit of one of them and then that sets us up for the future you know like we get the, we get the sense that will is starting to see them across the show
0: yeah mm-hmm. i did really like that shimmery shot of of them uh, next to the tower when will was looking thought that I exactly that really and well.
2: and it, and, it, and i think it's interesting that he doesn't say anything about it you know it's like that's kind of cool um like he's hiding so like, i i always think i mean it's not really spoken about in there but my the way that i sort of um process that is It's a bit like again it's a bit like the, the fact that he never really wanted to talk about the fact that his mum had mental health issues it's a bit like he doesn't want to talk about it in case he's getting them
0: mm, absolutely I'd love to ask you about the monkey this season because last time we spoke to you we spoke a lot about the monkey and the immersions in the monkey and how we feel so sorry for the monkey but also hate it at the same time
2: <laughs> how, how do you feel about it now
0: i oh my gosh <laughs> there were so many moments i remember talking about it rich and we were just like there were so many cute moments and so many moments where i genuinely like the hatred that i felt for the monkey from season one left and all i did was feel sorry for it like the monkey in the window where mrs Coulter leaves no, oh. <laughs> and the bit where she's like on the i can't remember where so it is but she's like on the floor and she's like shouting at it and it's
1: In the basement of the tower, when she literally
0: kicks him as well. No, thank you. It's it's such a such a roller coaster with the monkey. And yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, what the process was for that this season because it does seem that it amped up in a way of of like, I feel like you wanted us to feel more sorry for the monkey this season.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think like I I think I mean a lot of the time with it, you know, we're also it's a balance there's things you go in and plan and then there's opportunities that you see off the back of Ruth's performance and you can never ignore them as well you know um so and and also the tone of the edit also makes you go ah, maybe that's a good thing for that so to say everything is like thoroughly completely planned is being correct and also that would be really boring because it means that we never were open to you know the stuff that we you you know because the You know, making a TV show is like, you know, it starts totally out of focus. And by the time you put it on TV, it's as in focus as as it will ever be as a show. Right. And and as things get sharper, you start seeing more details and going, oh, I can feed more into this and keep sort of iterating. So I think, um, you know, her journey is really complicated in this season in as much as she's kind of her most conflicted all the way through. But I think her, but I think, what you get as, as an audience member is you understand that that kind of maternal love is growing. She has no idea how to process it or show it. But off the back of season one, that's to me, that's the main thing about her. Like her motivation is changing, you know? And I think, you know, and you can see that in... So I can't remember what episode it is. It's when she talks to Father Macphail and she basically says... She basically like is the engineer of getting him into power right? Because she, she's lost Lyra. She's like, okay, I just need to hold, hold things together and maintain control. So I'm going to kind of control what I can. So she's controlling all of these sort of idiotic men around her. Right. And she, she kind of gets Macphail into a position of power where she then has power. And as soon as she learns that where Lyra is, she's like, I'm out. And she like just flip basically verbally flips in the bird and walks off. Right. And then, and then she's off on the quest for her daughter. And I think for me, that the singularity of that choice, and how it's sort of irrelevant of how healthy her intentions are, whether she's like you know, oh, I'm going to control Lyra or stop her, stop the fall or whatever, or you know, all the things she learns over time is kind of irrelevant because there's a core sort of singularity to what care, what she starts to care about, like sort of sort of nearly at the midpoint of the season, I guess. Um, And that is her daughter and and somehow trying to be the most dysfunctional mother to her possible. And I think the relationship with the monkey is one of confusion, which is why I like it. It's like, you know, there's bits like when she's having the two-hander with Lee and she keeps hitting Lee and the monkey's like grabbing Hester. And then like, I think the monkey is like, I I keep sort of describing the monkey as like that guy. I don't know if I said this to you last time. He's the guy in a bank heist who starts shooting everybody. (laughs) And then someone's like, whoa, 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 we said we were going to kill and He's like, what? I didn't get that message, right? That's what <laughs> I think the monkey's like a lot of the time. So like that scene with Lee, it's like in his mind, he's like, oh, it's go time. This is where we do all this, the nasty shit that we do, right? And then Mrs. Coulter like breaks because, you know, she's starting to feel things and the monkey's confused. And then when the monkey goes out and holds her hand, it's not quite sure if this is what it's meant to be doing or not <laughs> because Mrs. Coulter isn't quite sure what she's meant to be feeling, right? And so, like, I we tried to keep uncertainty and sort of unpredictable behaviour from Mrs. Coulter to the monkey in there because it helps to kind of keep her, to be honest, a bit unstable. Because you've got to get around, you know. Like, if if we know where we're going in book three, which we don't, you've got to assume, you've got to assume that you've got to make people go one way before they go another way. Whichever way it is, whether they go further into the pits of hell or the complete 180-degree thing, you've got to get them somewhere to then get them somewhere else. Um, so, you know, that's the that's sort of what we were leaning into. And things like, you know, when she's, like, putting her hand over a fire and the monkey's, like, staring at her or when she comes home and the monkey's just looking at her and not quite, like, just confused about what's going on, you know, that that kind of confusion, if you think, oh, this is, like, if all it makes you think is, like, it makes you feel a bit of love for the monkey. Therefore, you're feeling some love for Mrs. Coulter, even if you're hating Mrs. Coulter at the same time. And if you're doing those things, it's a good character, right? So, and and I think I think we're successfully at a point now where you 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 never see them as anything but one thing, and that's the thing that I was really happy about when I looked at the comments online this year, which I only did like about twice because you know
1: that way leads the road to ruin <laughs> exactly. um,
2: so it's better just to forget that there's people out there most of the time um the thing that's interesting is there were more comments this year where people said oh that monkey did x i feel bad for mrs Coulter, or that means she's feeling this or that and 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 that was what i really liked because it grew over the first season and then it was just the base the baseline of this season was like that kind of connection which i thought was cool makes me happy
0: yeah, 100%. It went that way for us as well, Rich, didn't it? Like, we were talking much more in our TV show episodes this time around how the conflict between Mrs. Coulter and the monkey meant that Mrs. Coulter herself was going through a conflict with herself. Whereas, like, in season one, it was more, we talked about the monkey and Mrs. Coulter separately. So I think that really, really came across uh, well this season.
2: Yeah. And it's, and, you know, it's about just in our, in our kind of world, especially when you're trying to introduce law. You're just trying to build on foundation. So like season one is just a foundation of something for you to build on to try and get you to where you want to go, you know, because it's such a, it's such a leap to ask people to connect those two characters, just on screen, just be like, oh yeah, the monkey and her are the same person. So all right. (laughs) (laughs) And not until they feel like it, right? And that's our job.
0: Mm -hmm. I I have to quickly ask on the monkey about the shot of the monkey in the seatbelt, because we just lost our minds over that i thought it was the funniest <laughs> cutest thing in the world and it seems like most other people that are fans of the show did, How health, did... And safety,
2: health and safety is important <laughs> it is, it is. Mon- mon- monkeys, monkeys safety is important as our safety that's why you that's why you respond to it it's because you know it's the right thing to do
0: yes yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> with your behind the scenes knowledge can you tell us whether you think that uh, the monkey belted himself in or whether mrs coulter belted him in or whether perhaps boreal did as like a sign of well this is my car i'll show you how it works i think <laughs> I, th- I
2: think i think the monkey sat there for ages, not knowing what to do, looking around. Mrs. Coulter was completely oblivious to the concept. And Then what happened is Boreal told her to put her seatbelt on. And in turn, the monkey was like, oh, I guess. No no one told that monkey because neither of them are, are savvy enough to care that much. So the monkey was like, oh, just, okay, I guess I'll do And then it was a bit clumsy for a while and eventually got it in. <laughs>
0: oh, yes, that fits. Yes. That works yeah,
2: and, and and actually I like to think that like it only got it on just after the car started moving, so there was a little panic just before.
0: Oh, it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: that's that's how I've just sort of briefed the animation. It's <laughs> Yes,
0: yes, it fits perfectly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. I guess we did touch very briefly there on Lee and Hester. Now, obviously, this season. You broke all of our hearts into a million pieces and had to do justice to one of like the biggest most devastating moments in the books and obviously we were lucky enough to kind of be able to chat to Lynn about that from his side and the acting perspective but obviously Hester has so much going on in that scene and destroys us uh, how how was that experience working out how to completely eviscerate your audience?
0: <laughs> Thank you.
2: It's all right. I mean, I, I you know what? I can honestly say that I don't know if I felt that we did the book justice or not because I'm too close to it. I don't know. I can't. I don't, I, I cannot experience it as a viewer because I can't. You know, the closest I came to experiencing it as, as a viewer was when we were recording Christella doing the doing Hester's death, and I mean that like doing voice recordings on this season was just utterly bizarre because we had to do them all remotely. I don't know if you, I don't know if I've, I've I've spoken about this before or not, but anyway, we're them all remotely. So as so I was doing it from my ha- from my the bedroom of my temporary house in Cardiff, and I was like doing Zoom calls to like you know um, uh, David Suchet, her like Christella, Phoebe Waller Bridge, but from like my bedroom. And then like I was halfway through doing one with one of the um, voice actors, I can't remember which one now. And then like my daughter like fell over. And- split the back of her head oh, open a God. bit and I was like I've just got to go give me a minute it was just like a very weird discombobulating experience and like you know David Suchet who's like still continues to be one of the sweetest men in the world he was just like at home being like amazing at like setting all of this recording equipment up himself and constantly saying thank you to everyone he's like Aww. thank you so much thank you so much for talking me through this stuff and it's like stop being so nice <laughs> so anyway but off topic so Christella when she did that she she has like this like i guess like it's kind of like a cupboard in her new york apartment where she where she's like hung like loads of drapes around it on the walls because she does a lot of voice acting and she can record in there so it was sort of like it was just like for me it was like a weird experience because everything down to like the camera angle we had like it was quite high like looking down on her and then when she did like the the hester death like she really she got really upset and was like properly crying afterwards like and I was like, man, I've like, like it probably gave me the feels. You know what I mean? It was like, I feel like it was strange. I felt like at that point we killed Hester and we hadn't even animated it yet. And then it was a bit like, okay, now we've got to animate to that, but we've just like she's killed Hester, and our job is just to now make a picture of that. You know? And I think a lot of the a lot of it was about like building up to it, I guess, like trying to because it was what I really like about that whole run of them in the kind of Alamo Gulch type scene. What I like about that is I like that you go through like a few waves of Hester and you and, and it's almost like at first she's kind of a bit confident and definitely the sidekick. And then as, as Lee's internal doubt at the beginning, he's a bit like, yeah, we can do this. Then halfway through Hester's a bit like, this is my fault. And that's, the, that's like doubt starting to come in and you start going, oh, maybe things aren't going to go very well here because Hester's now no longer being like really sort of like, you know, shoot from the hip cocky sort of thing. And then it's just like building that up, you know, and actually the bit at the end, it's really hard to work out how to make a, uh, like, cause we really didn't want to see Hester dissolve. It was shot so we wouldn't see it, but then in the edit, it was then cut so we could see it. And then we went back to making it so you couldn't see it because it, we just felt it was like more powerful. That idea of like, you know, you're with Lee and you pull out and then Hester goes because you don't need to see the, you know, you need to see something that you love like dissolve and die it's like it's actually like if you think about um i was actually realized it afterwards If you think about avengers when like he comes outside and his family's gone it's kind of sadder than if you saw them go you know and and really the trick with that was just like how do you make hester seem weak because you can't like put bullet holes in her everywhere and stuff and like you know it doesn't really work that way And and you know how do you make it Things. It's all just body language and 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 just mostly Christella's like voice and us just sort of just gently leaning into it. And again, like I said, I think last time is like being restrained and not doing too much. And, you know, I think the biggest note that we had or the thing was like, do you make when Hester says we were helping Lyra, do you bring her head up as if it's like an aspirational end? Or do you bring her head down as if she's getting weak and we tried the up? but it just didn't connect enough rhythmically with her dissolving off screen. So we brought the head down and actually just that tiny change of like that body language made all the difference, but you have to try both because, you know, like, cause it, cause the, like the inflection of Christella's voice, like kind of made it maybe made going up feel like the head rising up and getting eye contact feel good. But in the end, the opposite felt good as well. So yeah, it's tricky. I was really, I was really like worried about that scene because like I said, I couldn't quite tell at that point if we'd nailed it or not but if people found it sad then that's good
1: pretty sure you broke everybody
0: (laughs) we we couldn't watch literally in the same room together but we watched the final like three episodes I think headphones on like press play at the same time like chatting on a video uh, video call while we're doing it and as soon as Hester like did that little slip on the rock I was like I'm done Yeah,
2: that was, that was, (laughs) we were like, we were like, because actually there wasn't a rock there when we shot and we put the rock in because I was like, the best, we need to get Hester up and give him something to like, give her something to struggle on. And it, you know, so we gave her this little, little, little mossy rock that we made just to put her on. And it's, I don't know, it's always those little things like, you know, I actually really like the bit when um, Lee gets shot and then it cuts to Hester and Hester's like lying on her side. I like that. For me, that was just quite abrupt. So I quite like that bit of that scene. Again careful attention to detail i guess is it you know our animators are really good the animators are just really good i think you know i'd love to i'd love to take credit for it but i just tell them what i think the scene's meant to feel to be about and i give them notes on you know most of my notes are on body language to be honest they're not about like where they put feet you know like i'd say to them i said you know hester goes on the rock and does a little slip but they interpret that and give me back gold so it's not like it's like me you know it's a it's a team effort and lots of talent i think you know probably more on their side than mine but it's um yeah it's good it's nice working with them to kill a to kill a hair
0: oh i know we watched that three times just be- like obviously because of the podcast and after the third time I was like i can't do this again not not for another year at least like, i can't do this you're
2: not going to have to until we get it out again anyway they will get the show out
0: again <laughs> i can't watch hester and lee die more than three times
2: no. <laughs> uh, how did you feel about the um the golden monkey specter bird handoff
0: Oh my god! <laughs> brutal, <laughs> beautiful. We talked so much about that, didn't we? And how, how it looked like the bird was like drowning. Oh, I loved it. It was one of my favourite bits. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it looked like a Japanese woodcut. Like you would want to illustrate that as a Japanese woodcut, like the beautiful way that the spectre looked like waves and like oh, the stork, was she a stork?
2: She's a Chinese pond heron, which is like, mm. there's like, like we can only find like two reference pictures of them. Like, everybody who made the CG asset I think will hate me to my grave for picking that animal. <laughs> so hard to make. It's got, like, fur and feathers and a stretchy neck.
1: You're just making up for the lack of goose. And yeah. Like it. It.
2: <laughs> but, but funnily enough, it was, I, I picked it because I wanted the monkey to grab it around the neck. So I picked an animal with a long neck just for that function, and then everybody wanted to kill me afterwards. But that I, the, I love that scene, actually, and I love the scene partly because of the sort of the genesis of it. Because there was like, it was written to be in a different location with a very, very different blocking. It was actually going to be, at the time, it was going to be outside in Chittagatsey, which is a bit more like the book in that it was outside, that kind of moment in the thing. And then, and it was going to be at the, at this sort of fountain area that we had. And then myself and Jamie Childs, the director, we went out for sushi, <laughs> very specific, went out for a very delicious sushi dinner in Cardiff. That that can happen, it turns out. And uh, and we just started riffing and chatting about the scene. And, you know, like I always really liked the idea that, like, Mrs. Coulter sets the, sets the spectre back on the, the monkey as, like, a sort of a weird bit of sort of self-harmy masochism. I quite, quite sort of like that vibe. Um, and then Jamie was like, oh, we could put it in the cafe and we could do it on the stairs and we could get all these really cool angles. And I was like, oh, yeah, but if we did that, then, like, you know, the monkey could hold it away and look like that and it could all be really... And it sort of just sort of the it went from being a really solid bit of script to then evolving like within the space of a dinner into something that we, that then got shot and then on top of that Jamie then did a whole bunch of extra stuff that sort of like totally levelled it up and then I went back in again and did a little pickup shoot for some of the plates of the bird you know all the the empty plates and stuff so I went back in and filmed some of that stuff once we'd got the cut together and worked out what we wanted you know at the final sort of rhythm of it. But yeah, I like it. I just like whenever you have scenes where, you know, the kind of like the process of it was like really kind of organic and fun and you start with something great and you just keep working on top of that until you get to, you know, something that you like. Yeah, I liked it. And it's, and it's you know, it's definitely sick in like, it's not sick visually because, you know, we can't do that much, but it's, I feel like within the realms of what we're allowed to do, it's it's about as harrowing as you can make that moment.
0: Yeah. And It makes sense as well what we're talking about about the monkey because the monkey is like offering up her demon to the specters but you still feel for the monkey because you don't want you understand what the monkey's doing the monkey doesn't want that to happen to him.
2: And the monkey monkey doesn't know if Mrs. Coulter has enough control for it not to just be like you know it's like all, all the monkey has seen is Mrs. Coulter like make some of them move around loosely and now she's like trying to get one of them to be really specific and almost precise and he's got to hold this thing out and trust that she can you know, that she's not mental enough that she's like, I'll just take them both out, you know? And that's why I think that kind of idea of like holding up, like, you know, Mrs. Coulter is very much like, you know, committing a murder while the monkey is holding up like a sacrifice, but kind of instead of himself that, and I, you know, and I think that I just like the sort of the weird complexity and all of the different conclusions you can choose to take from what that means psychologically. But I just think the language of it, the body language of it is really nice. Nice isn't the right word, but strong. (laughs)
0: yeah Mm. absolutely Uh, you mentioned about picking that certain demon for uh, the witch and we absolutely have to ask you about red panda uh, because we had so many people loved red panda and he was the cutest thing so we just wanted to know where that came from who 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 pushed for a panda was it you
1: (laughs) yeah
2: actually you don't know this but I, you might not remember, I secretly gave you the answer to this last interview. Oh, my God. Ooh. You asked me what one of my favorite animals was and what I would want to be, and I told you it would be a red panda.
0: Oh, my God, Rich, we had the answer all along.
2: You had the answer oh, all along, yeah. <laughs> um, I went to um, – I, 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 I was sort of like – I love like red pandas because they're just super cute, right? That's like a baseline good enough reason. I don't need to give you anything else, but I can give you – I'll go further. I went to the zoo with my kids, I can't remember which one. And I was watching these red pandas walking around. And I was sort of just like looking at their body language and it was like, you know, they're kind of like weird animals because they they kind of, they feel like they're in the same wheelhouse of animals that Lyra becomes, like the the Pine Martin and Pan, you know, in terms of their thing. But they're also a bit bear-like, right, and a bit lumbering and a bit clumsy. And I really just like... I really loved when I was watching I was like watching walk around and I was like and then 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 like at some point later I kind of made this sort of connection about the idea of like Lyra being in a new place and wanting to be a bit more exotic especially around this new young man that she's met but that that time in your life is quite clumsy and not really smooth (laughs) yeah and and I thought that like you know you bring in Whereas the pine martin is like quite elegant and smooth and clean in the way that it moves. And whereas red pandas are just a bit awkward, like, you know, they're a bit, they can walk on branches, but they're a bit wide for it. So they have just a bit of, sort of wobble to them. Um, and I just really liked that just visually that that kind of, even if no one ever made that connection, it would just kind of sort of make sense on screen. So I suggested it to Jane and Joel and they both went, yeah, yeah, we love it. Go for it. That's awesome. And then um, Joel then did some really cool stuff, some of which we never actually got to pay off, which made me really sad. Um, But there's like, when we originally shot the bit when she comes into town, right at the beginning, she like climbs over a gate and walks into town. Um, And there was a shot that looked up and Joel painted on a mural on the wall that was of a red panda eating these berries. And the berries are in the cafe outside, on the tree outside the cafe, And the idea is that the red pandas are part of the kind of, like if you're going out into the jungle, you might find some red pandas for real. They eat these red berries and the red berries are the type of berry that is what makes the drinks that people keep drinking that are all around the soda. Mm -hmm. It's like a low soda type thing. So that's like, like Joel created an entire backstory about why there would be imagery of a red panda around the town and the idea, and then that, connected back and we just don't get to pay all of this stuff off but that connects back to the idea in the first book that lyra turns into more exotic animals or more varied animals because of her exposure to things and her curiosity when she's in when she's basically like yeah most kids don't get to be around professors and scholars and she gets to see all these books and see all these things and go up on the roof and see gargoyles and sculptures of other demons and she's exposed to stuff so she's just naturally more able to be more varied I guess. So anyway, it's a very long-winded way of saying that they're cute and I wanted to make one, but there was a good reason.
1: Everybody loved it and I definitely yeah, you've, just the joy that comes from looking at videos of red pandas on the internet. Oh, it's pretty
2: is... it's pretty. I mean, have you have you seen how they when they stand up?
1: Oh my god, it's the cutest thing. They just look like not real.
2: I know. It's like it's like all of a sudden someone's hand has gone up in them and now they're yeah. being puppeteered. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just like suddenly it's just, it's actually a tiny human in a red panda onesie. It's
2: it's like a little baby, (laughs) just like in a onesie. But um, yeah, we didn't have an opportunity to do the, the kind of what I would describe as the easy lads posture. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, yeah, we didn't have a chance for it, but yeah, you know, it was just nice to, we we knew we wanted to like mix in a couple of new things for Lyra, because as she's changing, we also wanted to get away from the pine martin at the beginning of the season for a while. Um, so yeah yeah there you go red panda
1: we did get a lot of questions asking about pan being a wolverine in the moments when he's defending lyra both when he intervenes in the bit with the cat in and when he goes off on one at mrs coulter and the monkey uh was that a deliberate reference to lyra's role in wolverine daphne's role <laughs> daphne's role Lyra's role Lyra, she was in it too <laughs> daphne's role in wolverine uh, I,
2: not not officially but i quite liked it as a thing i mean you know i i suggested i mean for me i suggested a wolverine i think she does turn into one in the book at some point does she or not i can't remember um mm. i can't remember at all to be fair but i know she turns into a bear at the top of the tower i was like we can't fit a bear at the top of the tower <laughs> mental <laughs> so anyway so we're- and and I was trying and it was about like part it was a, it was a mixture of like size and how you could make it the right thing at the right time we didn't I didn't want to make another kind of cheatery leopardy cat because I just think that that's as and you just leave it at that so I wanted something else for the bit when she faces off with the kids and I think it's also about keeping it in character. And again, you know, we just picked a red panda, which has got some kind of slightly bear characteristics. We've got the ermine, No, we've got the the pine martin, which is more of a a mustelid. And then you've got a wolverine, which is actually a combination of a bear and a mustelid, but just big. So actually, if you look at, you could almost at some points be, if you were confused about scale, think that it's just like the the pine martin, just like really close to camera because they just they just there's there's enough like, continuous, like, aesthetic between the two of them that it's kind of just, like, the grown-up version. You know, it's a nice way of saying she's grown up. She's kind of turned into a bigger version of herself sort of thing, you know? Anyway, and it also just happens to be a good nod to Wolverine as well.
1: <laughs> we like that. I feel like it's on the IMDb trivia as some, like, not trivia being like, that was a de- deliberate reference to Logan. But... They can keep
2: that in there. It's fine. It's, it, it's I mean, it, it is and it isn't. You know what I mean? It's like, as soon as we do it, it becomes... A clever bit of referencing anyway so
0: mm, yeah a very happy accident <laughs> yes, exactly. we'd love to ask you about the knife one of our favorite parts of season two was how the knife worked and how it looked cutting through into different worlds i thought it was just really satisfying and also the look of the knife in general i know rich you had a question about referencing for that
1: yeah it just the feel of it felt like somebody had stretched a bunch of really fine uh, fabric over canvases and gotten a mirror to like cut through them so he knew exactly how it felt and like you'd all watched him cutting silk with a really sharp scalpel like it just felt like that's what had happened. I mean that
2: didn't that, that didn't happen but I can tell you what did if you want. Um, okay. the, <laughs> I, can tell, I can tell what you mean. The um I mean the knife design that's all Joel Collins he's a very clever man that's some beautiful stuff you know I mean even down to like the fact that if you walk around the if you walk around the set of Chitagatsi, every single banister had a knife twist in it. Right? It's, it's just everywhere. It's everywhere as a secret thing in the town is that knife. It's like the top of the, the, ta- the top of the towers a twist. You know, it's like that guy knows what he's doing. Anyway, the um the the cutting thing. So it's really tricky. I mean, we 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 we'd already established like when you do this stuff, you've got to create like simple languages that people can understand. So we'd already established this kind of line visual both in the title sequence. And that title sequence was designed that way because it connects to Asriel creating the window. And that's that kind of line. So we have this kind of idea in our thing, that in our show, that the fabric of the universe at a sort of a fine level is made up of these kind of sort of strings that you can separate. And when you separate them, you can step between the worlds. Part of that is because of the way Pullman writes it. But Pullman does, again, write the windows in a very contradictory way. They're, you know, they're, they're big enough that you can step through but you can't see the world on the other side. But then it's like, how does sound work? What happens if something blows through the window? If it's raining, then rain comes through. If it's sunlight in one world and sort of overcast in another, does sunlight come through and blast through? And then how could you not see that in another world? And yeah, and then like sometimes people close it. Sometimes people cut squares and sometimes they're slices. And, you know, it's tricky. And and, and I think the thing that's really the most difficult is that it's much easier, relatively easier, to make like a Doctor Strange portal, which is just like a load of shit going on that looks cool, than it is to do something quite minimal. Because when you do something quite minimal, it you know, you're trying to, you're trying to, what we're trying to do is be just like... Subtle? Go on.
1: I was making a bad pun. I thought you were going to say subtle. No.
0: Love it. Well
2: That is the point. Is that like, that is, I am loosely sort of coming around to that, is that like, it has to be, Delicate and subtle—that is what we have to do because it's in the book, right? It's like literally in the name of the book. So we're, we're we're kind of instantly limited, and that makes it hard because actually doing something more subtle can look crap much quicker because you can't hide it in a bunch of sort of jazzy stuff, right? So it was a bit of a headache to do the the, the what we did as a way of like getting a mere a, sort of into it is is we did a few things. We 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 had like these rigs of just like fishing wire so that he could take the knife and like search around and like pluck them with the knife. And then when he cut, he could push against it and have some resistance as he slid the knife down, but we didn't want it to feel like he was cutting anything that had any real resistance properly. It, what You wanted it to have tension, but not resistance because the knife is meant to be so sharp that you can cut through anything. Right. I yeah. kind of looked at it that the knife when you push the knife between the worlds, what it does is it relaxes the fabric between them rather than actually cutting it and causing damage. That's how I view it. I view it that it's sort of like, um, it, it causes it to relax because the, cause, cause the separation between the world is kind of already there. Like if you can see the strings, you've got to assume that they're a way through, right? So it feels like the cut is already, the, the, like the access is there and it's that the universe is trying to hold itself together and the knife just allows it to ease. You know, that's how I picture it because you've got to create rules in your own head to then put a, of a flag in the sand to then base the visuals around. Um so yeah, so that's what we did on set is we we had those kind of these kind of gags for him to like, you know, slide the knife down and then we built a 3D system of these kind of strings and wires that could interact with a CG knife so that when the knife goes in and it slides down everything actually like cuts and parts and opens and and it's consistent. And then you know, th- then then you get into other issues, which is sort of a headache. It's like it's it's like when the camera moves, it's much harder to do. But when the camera is still, it looks like it's just done in two D and looks really fake. So you're kind of it's sort of like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, you know, with with those things. But yeah, I mean, the the, uh, the, the a lot of the references we had were like all to do with, um, you know, in terms of when you see the close up of it, I was like, you kind of want it to feel like. A spider's web on like a dewy morning. Like that's how you want it to look when the knife starts touching it. It's not like a constant thing. It's just like you, you just feel like particles like of light catching it and sort of hitting it. And we sort of played around with the colour a little bit, so it's sort of related a bit to the world you're cutting to or the world you're in. Like it's so that it's not always the same colour, it's sort of slightly relative to the space you're in. Um but yeah, they're fiddly. They were really, they were really fiddly and it takes quite a while to build confidence and I think that we learned stuff on that season for how we'll shoot them next season to kind of improve on it and sort of you know you know I feel like we got better at them over time to be honest the, I mean the highlight obviously is when you get the close-ups of it cutting like that's when we felt we felt we like we really nailed it and luckily we'd done enough windows in practice for other parts of the show by the time we actually did those really tidy close-ups.
1: I guess something else that fits in with that same visual language you were talking about building across the way that the world, worlds are viewed is the way that we get to see dust interacting with Mary through the cave and the way that it kind of like pulls out of the screen when she's kind of talking to it. Was it part of the, all the same logic?
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I it's harder for me. That's one that I didn't... I actually was really totally uninvolved in that other than just comp- getting the screens cocked comp- on Joel Collins and... Uh, his team and uh, erica who works for who works with joel um they they did all of that stuff and yeah i mean one of joel's like main phrases is joined up thinking (laughs) and it's all about joined up thinking right and he's right and that's what we try and do so he'll look at the way that when we have the demons die the dust that we have that comes off it's very subtle and again these things are, you know you might never even see it but it's there it's like as the dust comes off what it does is it doesn't just drift like you have some that just drifts but you have other other bits of dust that have an energy that make them more like your like your will like your your pers- personality and your free will so it's just like there's a bit of energy that's a bit more random so Joel likes the idea of putting some of that into it and this idea of having a bit more intention in the way the particles move um, and then connecting the colors a bit with the colors of the windows and Azriel's window. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it's all joined up thinking and, and, and there is a connection between them. I think Joel does a really good job of bringing the show up to date without going too far away from the source. Like it feels like the modern version of what's in the book. Like if Pullman had written it today, he'd have written that and it wouldn't change the tone of what he wrote, you know. Because she could go off on a crazy tangent with that stuff. And he, she's like in virtual reality and all kinds of shit. But he um, he doesn't do that, which I like. You know, he's very good at keeping it grounded and just modernizing. It's like, it's like the whole mobile phone thing.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Asriel's like popped up a few times. And obviously we know that there was an episode that was lost. I wanted to ask about that final scene that we get with him at the very end. I think I read somewhere that that was shot after. Is that, is that right?
2: Yeah, that, that, that was shot after. What happened was um, we, we lost the episode. I said lost the episode. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a death in the family. Um, but anyway the, like, like, anyway, the episode went, we, we, we were going to have Asriel in the season because to, to us it was always like, it's, it's hard to work out how to fit Asriel into the season, but it feels weird that he's not there. And it's weird in the book, like it's weird that like, and then it's suddenly like you cut to Azriel, and it's like, Asriel's doing all this stuff now. And you're like, huh? um, so, you know, it was hard work actually. I remember it was hard work from, for the writers and for all of us to like discuss what Azriel should be doing and how it was going to work. And then Jack Thorne really engaged in it and he came up with something really, really cool. Um, and, you know, part of it was, you know, there was a lot of kind of like brainstorming sessions and all that kind of stuff that, you know, in hindsight we probably didn't need to do now um but we knew that we still wanted to have just a nod to what to him because he's like him and what he's doing is such a big part of the third book and also you want people to know that it's about to go absolutely mental and that you're going to introduce and, and, and we didn't do the scene with will meeting the angels but we knew that we wanted people to know that the angels were going to become a thing um so uh we had all these ideas and actually in the end we had an idea i'm trying to think about how it went we had an idea for that scene uh we had to try and work out how to fit it in financially with all of the other work we had to do as well because you know like that's the thing by that point you've normally spent all your money (laughs) and then you're like going oh we still want to do this whole scene with like an a-list actor and visual effects and uh, this stuff um so we um i mean in the end basically like it was a combination of working out what we wanted him to say And the fact that we wanted it to be part of like this kind of end montage. And then I did, because at this point we didn't have any directors either. They've all gone and moved on. So I did um, a, literally on a, on a bunch of post-it notes, I did some storyboards of what I thought the coverage of that scene could be for us to get through it both financially and tell the story that we wanted and make McAvoy look like how we want it to look. And then we got the we got the speech we got the speech through, and then we combined that with the storyboard, and we did like a little animatic of it in three D to work out all the angles, um, and and what we were going to do, and then we literally like in sort of like mid pandemic, we were still legally allowed to film. It was after it was when we were allowed to shoot, and uh, I just went to a small studio in like West London. McAvoy came down, I directed him for the day. He did all this stuff. We. Sh- shot that scene in an afternoon put it together and that's it you know i mean it's it it, from a from a functional perspective it was it was it was very much really working out what we want him to say and how you reintroduce him and you know we we really liked the idea of like reintroducing the voice before the face but we, we also shot some stuff in case we wanted to bring the face in earlier but actually it worked editorially really nicely like bringing him in and having people going oh oh yeah that's him and then wondering whether you'll see him and then he turns up and then it's like suddenly there's like an angel and he's going to war and you're like cool and then it ends um
1: (laughs) meanwhile rooters had this mad adventure at the same time um
2: so so yeah we um yeah it was kind of i mean it was simple enough in terms of like like shooting it and doing the post and it was simple enough but the, it was just very much like, how do we get the right thing that fits the tone of it and seems like the right choices, you know?
0: It was a good reveal uh, when we watched it and we, there was that voice. I was like, because Rich, you were like, who is that? And I'm like, it sounds real.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: he's, he's back. <laughs> he's back. Daddy's home. <laughs>
1: I guess that kind of pulls into, we were going to ask about the little hints of Angel that we got because we remember in that first interview we were saying, bloody hell, the angels are going to be a right mission. Because <laughs> Pullman describes them as simultaneously the strongest things in the world and also as insubstantial as a breath. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so the beautiful, beautiful shot of Mary oh, on the beach yeah. and just that glimmer of a little, a little wing moment was amazing. And then obviously the very, I guess, like, comedy shooting star vibes with the amazing little noises that they made in that last scene with Azriel, Brilliant. It has that Doing all of that helped you to solidify your angels or not solidify them?
2: (laughs) No, no, we managed to do just enough that gives us creative license for season three. Um, (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I I feel like we got, you know, like the way that they fly when you see them in the distance, like little comets and stuff, you know, like with, you know, I think that is, we like that and it's cool. It's interesting that the thing that's interesting about them is how you want to represent them because, you know, like you don't want to do an entire season next season of like semi-transparent like wishy washy angels walking around because it's going to it'll get tiring it'll be like you know so it's like that 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 I feel like we've worked out a potential state for them like one of their states and how we use that will be you know we'll probably take what we did you know because it we, it didn't have as much to, you, don't, you know we don't spend as much R&D time developing the angel for like those brief bits as we would for an for like a proper rolling out of the angels across the season as like primary characters. So um, I feel like we've got a whole nother round of R and D that will be inspired off the back of what we've done. And we'll probably riff on that and change it. And then how it fits into what we do with them and the performances is, you know, that's to be honest, it's, we're still working it out. It's the fun of this bit. That's
0: very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose on that, I have to ask about the Malefa again. We spoke about it in the last interview, and I know that it was very much still up in the air about what you were going to do. But now that season three is confirmed, have the talks started in, in what the Malefa are going to look like? Of course.
1: <laughs> of course.
2: We've had lots of conversations about it, and we will continue to do so until you get to see them on <laughs> television and you don't get to hear anything else. That's how it works.
0: Okay. Fair enough. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean that. I mean, yeah. I mean, season three is like uh, it's mad, and there's a lot to work out across the board, and you know, stuff that you've got to take and sort of somehow make logical, and things that really, really work on the page that don't work in the the you know the format of a TV show, and it's a lot of work, and the writers are all working really, really hard to find their way through it. Like in narratively, we're working really, really hard to find our way through it visually. Keep the surprise alive. That's what I would say.
1: Yes, definitely. There's so much in the third book that I feel like by the third book, Phil's gone. Everyone suspended their disbelief. I can do whatever I want. Let's have elephant monsters and tiny dragonfly people. Yeah. Let's do this.
2: Thanks, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks. Phil. I mean, but I mean, I mean that's that's the I mean that's the fun stuff, you know. And the, again, I, it's the same sort of thing. It's like it's about restraint. Because, you know, there is a very, very bad version visually of that book. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, and it still has to be part of the tone of the other seasons we've done. Yeah, you know, like we've done our adaptations so far of books one and two, and our adaptations put more weight into different things than the book do. Like, you know, Mrs. Coulter and her relationship with self and how she is is far more, it's far richer in the book she's great in the book but what we have done is lean into that more and what we do with season three we'll have to make those same choices i guess yeah.
1: i'm so excited for camping out in a cave culture um- <laughs> <laughs> how did she get there who knows <laughs>
2: there's a whole season of just uh, trekking through the himalayas like with sherpas
1: <laughs> i guess a thing that we've not really touched on much is the huge thing that is the witches this season they've got their own entire battle going on and we get to have some lovely moments again with the witches' console who we don't really get to revisit in the books how was it dealing with the witches this season i guess we get a lot more moments with some horrible cloud pine shoulder removal torture that was super fun and nasty and then some super like badassery fighting at the end where they kind of completely destroy a zeppelin fleet it feels like there's an entire other story there being illustrated with the witches. I wonder if we could kind of get into that.
2: Yeah, I, I find. I mean, the, I find that the witches are hard in the in the books because if you actually go through the book, it's like they 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 kind of read as being one thing, but a lot of the time they actually they either don't actually actively do a lot, or they do stuff that's not totally successful. So it's like, we'll do a healing spell on you, Will. It's kind of worked, you know, and it's like, sort of, uh, you know, you need another guy with some (laughs) sablon, we'll probably hook you up later. But, you know, it's so so I think, you know, they're they're, they're tough because they're a really important subplot and they're a really, really beloved character. But, you know, all the characters that you need sort of need agency, right? And so that's kind of the exercise that we went through is trying to give them the right agency relative to the show and the pace of the show. And also like there's whole chunks in the book where you don't know what they're doing, but when you watch a TV show, it's hard to leave people for that long. Um, so really, I mean, like, you know, I think that, that, you know, I mean, I can't really speak too much for them, for them, but like, you know, the showrunners and the um, the writers did a lot of work, like trying to find like threads and arcs that work through and trying to make them feel effective and keep the, keep the story like, you know, like relevant throughout. Um and then my job is just to then make them do some cool stuff fundamentally. Um, so, you know, we had fun with uh, the BAMP thing around this season and like trying to make them, you know, fight and be brutal and quite direct within the realms of what we're allowed to do graphically, you know, on on the show. And yeah, the bit when she's in the storm was good fun. When Ruta's flying through the storm, like we had, that, 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 that they're always really good fun scenes to do because they're all about like rhythm and movement um that originally was going to be one long scene and then it got intercut afterwards and then we had to make some adjustments for the intercut um but yeah i mean they're they're like they're really really fun from a visual effects perspective but they're just hard i think they're they're, they're just hard from a story perspective because you you know the guy i know that the guys are really keen to stay on canon as much as they can um but also it's got to fit in the the the, the you know the show moves i mean it's a <laughs> the show moves forwards as we all know like it progresses quick. Like a lot of stuff happens. And it's like this week, boom, 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 boom. And you're all, you know, it's like a, it's, it's, it's Lyra's Odyssey. And then it becomes like Lee's Odyssey. And then it goes back to being Lyra's Odyssey. And then it's Mrs. Coulter's Odyssey. But everyone is moving forwards. And there's not a lot of time to like sit around and just like contemplate. So it's just getting, it's just, you know, the, the guys just have to, they just have to work hard to fit the witches into that and, and feel like they're part of that kind of forward moving story. And I think they did a good job actually, because it's, if you actually break down in the book, you know, you 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 can kind of feel the problem when it becomes television, but it isn't a problem in a in a in a in a book. But yeah, I mean, there's I mean, there's not a lot of um. You know, we choreographed some fight scenes, made them disappear in funky ways, um, and reappear in funky ways, and flying through a storm, stuck them on some wires, <laughs> swung them around, replace replace replaced big parts of them afterwards because you always have to. You know, that's it. Really, it's good fun stuff though. I like I I do like I really like. I do really like them in season two. Like I felt like season one was just like, we only gave the like little hints of them. Like season two is, again, it's that idea of like building on a foundation and stuff. So.
0: I wanted to jump back because I skipped over this question and I would like to ask you about Will and chopping his fingers off because I love gore and I love anything like that. Um, and I thought that it was done really well. And I just wanted to ask you about that process. And like, we had a conversation about like, where do you decide to chop them off on the fingers, whether it would be like towards the top or like right at the bottom? And yeah, what was that process like? So I imagine there were a lot of practical effects like on set that Amir would have to do as well to like hide his fingers. Um, or was it all like CG?
2: That's always a combination. We um, I mean, so in terms of where you cut them off, like from a visual prosthetics perspective, it's really hard to cut them off here like at your at your lowest knuckle i can't say here because it's a podcast (laughs) um it's really hard to cut them off at your lowest knuckle because actually it's very restrictive on your hand movement when you're trying to act and suddenly you kind of feel that someone's trying to hold their fingers in right so it's easy to keep them kind of bent and strapped back like that it turns out right because you strap them in that position so what you know what we do is we we strap them back and then we create a prosthetic that covers up as much of it as we can and then and we create the stumps as well obviously as little painted stumps, sometimes they're green, sometimes they're painted. Um, He has to do a really good job of um, being aware of where the camera is so that he's not doing this a lot. So that's, that's a cognitive load on him. Like he's thinking, you know, when he's acting, he's like trying not to show that stuff too much. Um, And then when he does, we, we do, we do a combination. We never, we never replaced it in 3d. We did everything in, in a two dimensional painting kind of way to paint them out and paint the wounds in and, and, I mean, all prosthetics, however good you make them, you can see the seams and the joins when it gets down to it, especially after about like ten minutes on set and someone's moved around and it's heated up under the lights and you know, their hand's gone a bit sweaty, but the but the, the prosthetic hasn't. So now a bit shiny and a bit matte and you know, you've got all that stuff. Um so so yeah, so it, it's it's really a case of going through that process. And then with the the, the cutting off of the fingers, um, we just tried to find a way because we we couldn't do a gory you know, like, there's a version of it where, like, because in the book he's got the rope and then he opens it up and there's a version of it when he opens it up and he's got, like, in his hand his two fingers separate and then he drops them all, right? But we just went with this sort of more from his point of view and Lyra's point of view way of doing it that keeps it clear what's happening but, and, but doesn't um, make eight-year-olds vomit.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, combining that moment with Pan getting kicked across the room was... um a my, my, that, was my,
2: that, was, that was my choice.
1: <laughs> Why? That was one of, Why would you that do that to Pan? Like, because it's, you
2: know, it's like, you know, I really like the idea that like Tulio, he's like, I don't know what a demon is. <laughs> it's just like, a, just like a weird animal that's like in my face, stealing my knife. I'm going to kick it out of the way. You know, it's like, he doesn't oh. know he's kicking Lyra in the soul.
1: <laughs> it was a very clever thing to do that, which makes everybody like visibly like gasp and shout seconds yeah. before you just chop a main character's fingers off.
2: <laughs> but you're also trying to build, like, you know, you're trying to build tension. And, like, when you do scenes like that, I mean, you know, it's also, like, scenes like that are really, really hard, right? And and, and I think people, you know, it's, it's easy to uh, sort of, like, underestimate the trickiness of them because, like, you can't, like, do, like, a daredevil fight sequence because, like, Will's not, like, a professional fighter and Tulio's just some bloke, right? So it's like, you know, how do you stretch out? And then you've got, like, Terrence Stamp, you know, he's not particularly sprightly now, is he? You know, he's amazing, but it's not like he's, you know, going to do a Kung Fu scene either. So then, but then, so you're trying to do a knife fight in a tower, but you're trying to stay true to the characters. So then you're just, so then like, if, if I say those words to you, the question is like, well, you know, if I said to you like, okay, none of them can fight very well as a knife involved, an elderly gentleman <laughs> make me a tense <laughs> fight scene.
0: Mm
2: right so, so then you have to like look at what the ingredients are that can work so like the height of the tower there's a bit of jeopardy there you know will can do a few you know good bits of punching but you've got to keep it quite wild like tulio shouldn't look like he knows how to use a knife so it should just be like there's a knife in the room and it's a small space and there's a knife so that's already a bit like Ugh. and then like what does lyra do like how do you keep lyra engaged in the story or if she's not engaged in the story how do you get her out of the story how do you get her out of the fight? Well, how'd you get her out of the fight is you get a, someone kicks her in the soul and she falls over, right? So, you know, then suddenly that's a good reason to bring Pan in, right? Because Pan and then and then suddenly like if the knife's on the floor, you can get Pan to try and pick it up while Ly was doing something else like trying to help Will. So you're trying to like compartmentalize action so you can cover things and keep everyone busy. Right. And that's and, and it's and it's really tricky. It's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. It's like the easiest thing is three people that know how to fight have a fight. It's Like cool well then we can do what we want we can suspend our disbelief that everyone knows kung fu and you can have loads of fun it's much harder to make you know three non-fighting children and a, and an old guy you know have a have a tense altercation. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's what it really is right yeah so so, so I hope that makes sense that it, you know that's that's why we do those things it's like the and that's why the demons are really useful is because they allow you to have like a new Energy in the scene that's completely different from a human energy, and that allows you to break stuff up, and it gives you another person to throw reaction to that isn't a person up at this height. So suddenly you can get down here and see something, which allows another time to pass up top, which you're not watching. So yeah, it's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it?
1: Brilliant. Yeah, everyone hates you for getting pancaked.
0: <laughs>
2: I'll take it. I'll accept that. That's fine. What did you think of the um, my favourite scene in the whole show? in that season is uh pan attacking the golden monkey.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: That's not in the book that I mean we did the heist a very different way to the book. What do you think of it? Like it? Not like it?
1: Well, we've literally just covered the heist chapter. That's then our next chapter that's coming out. So that's very fresh in our memories, but I I loved it. I loved bringing one of our main questions in the book is how the fuck does Coulter get to Will's world there's no clear way that she gets there Boreal's like oh when I found you here it's like how did she get how did she get here <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly
2: they're, 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 they're like the puzzles that are like it's like it's like getting a jigsaw but two-thirds of it's <laughs> missing and you're like
1: oh! and Pullman just puts in like three words like she found her way there and you're like oh. Oh.
2: and in a book you kind of let it go you don't let it go if you've watched the show and you're like, uh, you know, like you've already filled in the blanks. But you know, I don't remember reading the book and going like, how did she get there? I didn't care because the stories are so engrossing and like it's just. You know, I don't think you. I don't think you really in fantasy literature. You're you just don't feel the need to like you know kick the tires of all the ideas and work out you know if they're fine or if they're solid enough. You know, I don't think people care
1: unless you're podcasting about it.
2: <laughs> well, that's different. You have a forensic. You have a forensic responsibility for the source material.
1: Yes. Uh, But no, that episode had so many... The gaps that were filled, we raved about, basically. Like, any scene with Coulter and Boreal in that episode where she had no time for his shit, we loved. And then bringing Lyra into the room with Coulter and having... I'm obsessed with that room of Boreal's. The set design is gorgeous. The colour palette is gorgeous. And putting it all in there and making it so dramatic. And the moment the monkey flies into the wall and... (laughs) it is just it's everything we love that scene so much we were again when we were watching together we were shouting to each yeah. other <laughs> about it like oh my it's God.
2: definitely a good tension builder that's what i like about it it's like a, it's a real like again it's like a proper it's like doing a normal tension scene but you're covering two things at once like will and you know like when we were shooting it and it's actually really interesting because you have to like the, the problem solving that goes on is really unexpected and leanne um well who's our director on that she's awesome I, I i loved working with her and we we like really between me her and joel Devlin, the dp we really like worked through that sequence like we didn't do any previous and we just we just literally walked down and we went and then this goes over mm-hmm. here and we'd walk around the set and we'd pitch ideas to each other to try and work out how to stage it and you know what you have to take into account is when you're shooting with kids you only get a certain amount of times with each one of them so just the shooting perspective of it made it essential that we separate out Will and Boreal from Lyra and Mrs. Coulter. Right, yeah. So then what you do is you're, you're posed a problem and then you build a solution around that problem and the solution is really cool because then suddenly you're like, well, this is great because we can have the tension here and you can hear the tension there and then you can cut to the tension there and then you can hear the tension back here. So you've got like from a sound perspective, you've got things overlapping. So then what happens instead of like panicking about whether or not you're doing the right, you know, one of a million options, you're like, well, we have to do X So now we can make the best version of X we can make rather than spending all of our time going like X, Y, Z, A, B, C, which one should we do? And you've spent a bit of time on all of them, but we just spent loads of time solving X, you know, it meant that we could really get into it. And, you know, like we shot all of that stuff. Like I, you know, like I can't even, we had like the the whole kind of role reversal moment. You know, that was another one of those meetings where we were talking about the heist. And like somebody suggested one thing and then somebody suggested the other. And I was like, well, why don't we just have the monkey attack, why don't we have Pan attack the monkey and do like a proper parent-daughter reversal thing? And everyone was like, that's really cool. And then they started riffing on that and it evolved into this and turned into that. So that again, I have a really fond memory of the genesis of that scene in the same way that I do of the um, monkey bird sacrifice moment. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and yeah. And I thought that then when it got into the edit, it really like, I, w- I remember watching the first cut of that scene and going, like, yeah, like, it, I felt the tension even without like the sound and half of the shots because I had, I had to go and shoot a load of pickups of just like bits of demon action and stuff like that. And I just, I love the parallel to, you know, the, you know, even just down to like the fact that we, you know, we used the fact that they go around, they go around a bit of couch like they do in season one just like connecting the kind of the visual kind of beats and they're kind of like in some ways doing a repeat but instead of it being like we've run out of ideas it's like a reversal and that has a lot of meaning it's really nice you know and when we sort of like had a lot of fun with that
1: literally just the moment when Daphne's like and it makes pan like that 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 perfect moment where you like she studied Ruth's face and then she did it and it was amazing
2: (laughs) on set on set she nailed that it was like yeah that's done she was awesome when she did that scene like she was so on it it's great
0: yeah the performances from daphne and ruth in that scene were great and i remember when we spoke to daphne after season one and obviously she couldn't say anything about season two but she said oh there's a scene in season two that i filmed which is my favorite yeah. scene i've ever done and i i i, I just think it's that one <laughs> I don't. yeah I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty,
2: I think that was i think that probably was it my, my biggest takeaway from that is you should watch it again is that uh, ruth wilson can can um hold a disproportionate volume of liquid in her lower tear duct. (laughs) (laughs) Like she managed to build up like a good half a cup of (laughs) tear without ever ever releasing it at the right moment. And I was like, my God. (laughs)
1: Skills. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. My other scene that I was screaming about as it was happening is obviously Mrs. Coulter taking out Boreal. The... Snake writhing on the ground. Like her choice to poison him rather than just setting the monkey on the snake is everything. And then just the beauty of heartbreaking and kind of satisfying because Boreal's been such a dickhead, of the poor snake, like writhing, and then just the beautifulness. Whoever was like directing the photography on that, like, he looks beautiful as he's dying. (laughs) Like the lighting on that is superb. And I wonder if that was a scene as well that you had a lot of conversations about how she was going to do that murder
2: I didn't actually have a lot of input on that one at all but I know that Jamie Childs who shot that and Ruth talked a lot about it and and also with um Arian as well they were all kind of working that out together and you know the things that I mean I, I I mean there's so much nice sort of Sort of evil in that scene. Like, you know, like the fact that she chooses a poison so she can basically watch him slowly die and talk to him while he does it is great. It's like, you know, it's very useful it's cool to, it's like, I'm not, you know, I'd normally set the monkey on you, but instead I'm going to set the poison on you and I still get to observe, which is kind of, she always sort of like defers punishment to something else or someone else, you know, which I like. The thing that we wrestled with, which I, you know, in the end, I, I, the thing that I suggested is the thing that landed, and I think it was the right thing is that so the shot of the snake writhing on the floor was actually the shot for the snake to dissolve in. That's what we shot it for. And I was like, actually, it's sort of better, in my perspective anyway, if like you see the snake writhing, so you understand the poisoning and you can be like slightly like ahead of what's happening when you're watching it. But then like have the shot, like the snake actually does dissolve, but it dissolves in a wide shot, which I think is really important because that speaks to how important his character is. In the, actually, in the scheme of the whole story, he's just one of many sort of things that Mrs. Coulter uses, you know. Whereas, it's, it's like if Mrs. Coulter died, you'd have like a proper—you'd be with the monkey and her, and it would be like you'd give it a lot of time. Same with Lee, but I like the fact that with Boreal, we ended up choosing like a, a throwaway wide shot, basically, as the the snake dissolving him dying moment, which I thought was cool. But yeah, it's nice seeing that. She again, I, I actually the thing I love the most is that when you cut back, she's got like five bottles of wine on the table. That's
0: what yes. we said. I was like, oh my god, I get smashed out of like two or three glasses of wine, and there she is with like five on the table. Like, how does she? Keep yeah, yeah it? but not only
2: that, but she, but she chose to have a drink with the body. <laughs> yeah, that's why. it's yeah, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, I'm not leaving. I'll just sit here and have a drink with him.
0: Yeah, it's very cool. <laughs> the thing it.
2: he's always wanted is my attention. I'm just going to get drunk with him, but he has to be dead for me to do it.
1: <laughs> well, we've kind of run through our big list of questions, but I guess if you have any other like standout moments that you feel like you want the world to know we'd love to kind of hear any of those if you feel like we've missed anything glaringly
2: uh i mean no i think we've covered most of it i I think the 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 yorick scene was kind of an interesting Mm, one
1: yeah absolutely yeah yeah. popping him in there
2: (laughs) yeah i mean that was we we were like i remember we were in a meeting and it was like how do we get this piece of information that we need you know like how does seraphina know to go through into the other world and we were like, well, and I was like, well, you know, Yorick was there. Why do not you go Why didn't you go and visit Yorick? And then we ended up having, and the, the thing I like about that actually is that like, I visually really like that scene. And the whole thing is entirely CG, like the environment, the ground, the floor, the everything. There's nothing real in it at all. And and so it's always, it's really nice when you do visual effects to be able to like plug a narrative hole that really helps out the story from nothing. It's like, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, like you really feel like you're helping, you know? Um so I like that. I like that scene. And then to be honest, any time that we have to do Yorick, I'm extremely happy about it because I like it. I'm gonna, it's gonna be interesting next season. Like I'm gonna be so torn between like my favourite large animal. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm gonna feel like I'm cheating on Yorick every time I'm briefing a malefa.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to see Yorick again and unexpected as well. We're missing him a lot actually in our read through of the Soul Knife at the minute.
2: Yeah, I really miss him as well in that. I, I sort of like he's the one character even more than Azriel that i would have liked to have had him somehow be threaded into that second book even if it's just like his you know what he does because it feels like he, he you just get to the point when he he's about to come into his own and you're going to find out who he is is like a king yeah and actually i feel like that's a whole other sub story it's like absolutely who is your king in a world that's melting it's kind of interesting a spin-off who knows someone should cough up the money we've already made the we've already made the bear yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> got that in our back pocket
1: I guess we always ask the demon question, but you've already been asked the demon question. But each week on the podcast, we say what we think our demon would have been that week. And we've had lots of conversations about how the idea that your demon settles for the entirety of your life is kind of doesn't work because we all go through lots and lots of different massive changes in our life that I think would probably shift the shape of your demon. And this year, particularly, has been a big one. So do you think your demon would have had a different form in 2020? And what would it have been?
2: It'd be like a hermit crab with a face mask
0: on. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Does that mean in season three we're going to see Lyra with a hermit crab human? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> with a with face mask, mask on. on. <laughs> no.
2: Definitely not. I just like like whatever animal sort of surprisingly quickly learns how like forgets how to socialise. <laughs> it would be that it's an animal that forgets how to socialize because that's what everybody is doing oh
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. (laughs) how to interact with humans again will be an interesting one in person
2: (laughs) exactly we'll just stand away from each other like being having that kind of like oh don't touch me sort of vibe yeah
0: but yeah i think that's all the questions we had so thank you so much for joining us again
1: we can only wish you all of the luck in the world for season three and hoping for no more. Pandemic interventions <laughs> in the process of it.
2: <laughs> I, think, I think the plan is to just to like, for the first time ever, you plan for a pandemic intervention because now we know it's actually plausible and what happens when it occurs. So it's a bit like, let's have pandemic measures in mind so that we can keep going, I think is the solve. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Thank you. And we, we know it'll be a while, but we'd love to have you back after season three if you're willing to come back.
2: Of course. Always a pleasure. Never, never, never a chore. Aww. It's always. Fun. Good. That's good.
0: Thank you, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
2: No worries.
1: Oh my gosh. That was so much fun. It was so good. What a babe. Russell Dodgson, everybody.
0: (laughs) Yay. Yes, yes, yes. Again. Thanks, Russell. Loved that interview. Such a long one for us as well. I think it might be our longest interview yet. Yeah. It's just
1: so much fun to talk to someone with so much like enthusiasm and just I love being able to get into a proper natter and I feel like we can really do that with Russell,
0: it's great. (laughs) Definitely, yeah, absolutely. We're just like a bunch of three pals, which I love. Yes. Yay! (laughs) But yes, thank you as always for listening to our interviews and I'll say this again, but if you are here just to listen to this Russell interview, then hi and welcome. Uh, We also do book episodes where we're going through each chapter of His Dark Materials a chapter at a time and we are currently halfway through the Soul Knife and we also cover the TV show episodes too. So if you liked this interview and you liked the sound of our northern charm, then you might like <laughs> our other episodes. Yes. Come join the family. <laughs> Please do. We would love to have you. <laughs>
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Hair Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at hdmpod, and you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com.
0: You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking to my pal Russell, you can find me hanging out on Twitter and Instagram at Faye Lee, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. and if you want to read some of my old blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.com.
1: I'm Rachel and when I'm not here speculating about spectres I am making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes and in my online shop rachemakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings and a great big thanks to Russell for his time and we'll see you
0: very soon and don't forget keep telling stories and all will be well.